0: Welcome to the RSA Events podcast, the home of world changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all. I am Gillian Tett. I'm an anthropologist, author of Anthrovision, and I'm the editor at large for the Financial Times in the US. And I'm also co founder of Moral Money, our sustainability platform. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here for this very special RSA event with Brad DeLong. Now, I've been watching watching Brad for many, many years because he's an incredibly influential thinker. Um, There are a lot of groupies in America in particular um, who've been following him as well. And he's now come out with a new book, wonderful title, Slouching towards Utopia, which has been getting some great reviews from some of the world's economists and journalists. And Brad has a very long list of credentials. So I'll try and keep it short. But the key thing to know is that he's a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, hence his fabulous background, which is certainly not the UK. Um, he's a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, a web blogger at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and a fellow for the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where I'm also on the board. He also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy from 1993 to 1995, where he was part of the Clinton team looking at a range of administration policies. And his new book, which we're going to be talking about today, has been described as magisterial by Paul Krugman. Um, Paul Krugman is not someone who throws around praise likely, so that's very striking. And it tries for nothing less than to explain the driving forces of the 20th century and where they have left us. Um, it's a terrific sweep through history, I must say, having read it. And it's also got this wonderful title, Slouching Towards a Utopia, which very much captures his key point that we could and should all be living a fabulous life across the world given the abundance of resources that we have, but we're not. And so what everyone wants to know is why and what can we do about that? But, Brad, perhaps I can start off by asking you to explain to us, first of all, why you chose this title, but also why you think that the period of time between 1870 and 2010 was humanity's most consequential period. That's a phrase you use a lot in the book. Because a lot of other people have said, actually, no, it's maybe from the 1945 through the end of the century. Maybe it's the uh, crash of 1929. But why do you think 1870 to 2010 is the key period to look at?
1: Well, for the first question, you know, slouching towards utopia was not supposed to be the title. You know, That was simply the <laughs> working title, the placeholder title, the title until I could think of something better. And you know, looking from a placeholder, I wanted to steal something, and I wanted to steal from the best. Um, and the best is William Butler Yeats, who has the phrase, louching towards Bethlehem, in the last line of his post-World War I poem, The Second Coming, which is perhaps the greatest and certainly the most plundered poem in the English language in the 20th century. And then, of course, Joan Didions, um, Sceptical and somewhat both hopeful and terrified take on California in the 1960s grabbed slouching towards Bethlehem for her book of essays about California um, and San Francisco. And so I decided to pick it up and run with it, and I never found anything better. As well, to why as the I, story
0: starts- I was jumping yeah. in and say, as I know, as a fellow author, I know that trying to choose a title for a book is an absolute nightmare. And with all my books, I've always thought of the most brilliant title about a month after it been published. Um, so congratulations mm-hmm. for thinking about it effectively beforehand. But tell us about this period. Why is this period so important? Well, before 1870,
1: technological progress is slow and human beings are rather fertile. And perhaps more important, um, under patriarchy, if you're a woman, but I suppose also largely if you're a man too, if you are lucky enough to reach the age of 50 and you have no surviving sons, you are kind of close to socially dead. Um, So before 1870, people are desperate to have surviving sons. Infant and child mortality is incredibly high. And so, given that technological progress is slow, people are always trying to increase their numbers and pressing against the limits of subsistence. And so, humanity is very poor. There is absolutely no prospect of ever being able to bake a sufficiently large economic pie for everybody to have enough. Come 1870, all of a sudden, everything changes. We can bake a sufficiently large economic pie or we will be able to do so soon in a matter of generations. And so humanity has to grapple with a very different problem and a much more hopeful set of circumstances than it had before 1870.
0: What actually happened in 1870 to change this so dramatically?
1: Well, you know, institutions, um, you know, institutions for being productive had been building for a very, very long time. Um, You want to go really far back, you can talk about the invention of coinage, um, which means all of a sudden that you can have a large scale societal division of labor without having to go through the priests or the kings, Um, you can just trade with people, and with money you can, with, with money they know you're actually good for it, they don't have to extend you credit, and so on, building more institutions over time, but you never get rapid technological progress until 1870 when the industrial research lab, the modern corporation and globalization, they all fall into place. The industrial research lab to rationalize and routinize discovery and development of technologies, the corporation to rationalize and routinize development and deployment and the global market economy to once you start deploying it, it gets deployed pretty much everywhere because the financial incentives to do so and to copy what other people are doing are so great. Those three things all hit humanity around 1870, and afterwards the rate of technological progress is nearly five times as fast as it had been even in what people had thought was the fast technology growth industrial revolution century
0: before. Wow. So basically, a combination of you know technological breakthroughs, innovation, globalization, uh-huh. free market capitalism, uh-huh. 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 coming together, uh, and yeah, Go but on.
1: more. Um, but more, it's the invent. It's it's not so much an invention. It's the invention of the idea that we should make invention routine. You know that before 1870, an inventor would kind of have one big idea and then frantically try to put together all the pieces of the puzzles so that they could actually make it and deploy it and do things with it. After 1870, inventors get to be inventors and then to hand off the problem to others. So that someone like Nikola Tesla, who would have been, was absolutely hopeless at everything except thinking up extraordinarily weird and yet occasionally very right ideas about how to make electrons dance. You know, someone like Nikola Tesla could be an enormous asset to humanity in the industrial research lab and corporate um, organization womb of the Westinghouse Corporation, while before 1870, Tesla would have been no good for humanity at all.
0: So it's really the process of innovation and the institutions Mm -hmm. around that, which matter enormously, Mm -hmm. not just the actual innovations themselves, which, of course, raises a lot of questions about going forward, what happens next. But, um, mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, so one of the arguments in your book is that this combination generated these amazing um you know bountiful supply of goods for humanity and should, in theory, have been able to guarantee us all a fantastic life around the world um you know, there was an extraordinary bounty. Why don't we have that today? What went wrong?
1: Well, you know, um'm metaphor the economic pie, you know, I'm baking, you know, but baking isn't enough, you know, even if you manage to bake a sufficiently large economic pie, you then have to slice it, and you then have to taste it, you then have to distribute it equitably, and then you have to utilize it, you know, utilize it properly so that people, you know, feel safe and secure and live lives in which they are healthy and happy. And although we have managed to solve the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, you know, absolutely magnificently in the past 150 years, you know, far beyond people's wildest dreams back then. You know, gone created material abundance, potentially, potentially at least, would carry us to and even beyond what people back then would have called the limit of human felicity. The problems of successfully slicing and tasting of distributing and utilizing our material abundance. Well, they still pretty much completely flummox us worldwide.
0: Basically, I mean, one of the things you stress in the book is the fact that compared to earlier generations, you know, our life, the way we live, the things we have access to, is absolutely unimaginable to people before Mm -hmm. in terms of its riches, its luxury. We all live a luxurious life. Um, almost all of us compared to people who went before. and yet we just don't feel grateful for it or don't feel particularly happy about it. Um, you have this great line in the book, which is basically that um, although so many of us want to basically, you know think that wealth is going to help us expand our leisure time um, and liberate us, in fact, quotes, we do not use our wealth to overmaster our wants, Rather, I want to use our wealth to continue to overmaster us. Can you say what you mean by that exactly? Well, this
1: is a quote from USC economics professor Richard Easterlin. You know, what he calls the hedonic treadmill um, that at the same time, practically all of us cannot imagine how people really live with less than a third of our income. And while we also cannot imagine how people with more than three times of our income manage to spend so much, you know, nevertheless, we do, right? Um, very quickly, we forget about what we used to think of as necessities, as what were the previous generation's conveniences become our necessities, as the previous generation's luxuries become our conveniences, you know, and we invent entirely new luxuries, um, and then are upset when we do not have enough of them. Right? Like, I am upset that Comcast Xfinity's cable internet link to my house goes down about 1% of the time, you know, and otherwise, it gives me 20 you know, megabytes of data a second. And to be depressed and upset and feel that I'm entitled to have much better service that they only managed to accomplish this amazing technological marvel which allows me to talk to you in this metaverse-like space here now and then be distributed throughout England and the world and meanwhile our producer is off in Australia someplace. Um, To be upset because that is not good enough. Um, It tells us bad things about our ability to keep our eyes focused on what is really important in our lives. Um, rather than perhaps working too hard um, to get too much money to buy things that really we won't enjoy that much once we actually get them.
0: Well, it sounds uh, like almost a religious lesson or, um, you know, sort of a kind of life philosophy. I must say, I find the concept of hedonic treadmill really helpful, and Mm -hmm. I'm constantly telling my kids about it and myself. and it's you know in some ways a concept we may end up having to rediscover this winter Mm -hmm. as potentially there are all kinds Mm -hmm. of supply chain shortages and squeezes and things
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um not just Mm -hmm. in the uk but elsewhere i was gonna say what do you what do you think has to change to actually get us to shift the balance or address the balance you know i mean you call your book slouching towards utopia what would utopia actually look like um in your view that's a very difficult question,
1: you know. That's what my friend Brink Lindsay has just started a book project called The Permanent Problem. I'm picking up on John Maynard Keynes's line that actually using wealth to live wisely and well is indeed the permanent problem of the human race, and one that he worries in the end we will indeed find very difficult to solve. You know, at the moment though, we have um, more immediate and urgent problems, Um, because even though we have solved the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie, equitably distributing it, slicing it so that everyone has enough, still escapes us absolutely phenomenally, right? There are still half a billion people in the world who live the lives of our pre-industrial ancestors, in which you're likely to spend several hours a day thinking about how hungry you are. Um, and go to bed at night knowing that you do not know where your 2000 calories a day are coming from next year, you know, or next month or next week. And that we still have 500 million people living like that in a world as rich as this one, you know, that is an absolute scandal and a disgrace. You know, plus now we are going to have, um, there is the serious potential for famine, you know, in Nigeria and Egypt um, come this winter. Given the reliance of those countries on grain exports from Ukraine and Russia, and given so far the inability of governments with grain stores to get it together, you know, to release them. But aside from that most urgent, right, from that immediate urgent problem of the bottom five hundred million and of famine stalking the world, there are you know, the deeper problems with our utilizing our wealth, right? That um, when I read science fiction novels when I was younger, um, there were utopian ones of enormous technological competence and progress and abundance. And there were dystopian ones you know, of killer robots and environmental catastrophe. And right now we have enormous technological abundance, but we also have killer robots stalking the skies above Syria and Ukraine. We have very smart people south of market in San Francisco figuring out how to make money by scaring old people and thus gluing their eyeballs to screens so they can be sold fake diabetes cures and crypto grifts. Um, and then, um, you know, there's um, also the fact that, you know, also the fact that we cannot get off of our particular hedonic treadmill, you know, that the utopian and the dystopian um, worlds have turned out in some
0: sense to be the same. And do you think that's a question of parenting, a lack of religious framework, um, a lot of political structures, debate gone wrong? I mean, when you face your students as a professor, do you sort of sit there Mm -hmm. and tell them to change their life views and life mentalities? Well,
1: I would say all of that, but I would say there's a deeper um, reason that these problems have flummoxed us. You know, if we back up to before 1870, it's pretty clear that your life is likely to be like that of your grandparents. And so, you know, social, economic, and political institutions have had time to adjust, you know, to what technology, what the technological underpinnings of people's daily lives are. Now, before 1870, they haven't adjusted terribly well. You know, given that there isn't enough Um, what governance and politics pretty much have to be is they have to be some elite figuring out how to elbow other potential elite members out of the way so that the elite can run a force and fraud con game on the rest of humanity and grab enough, you know, for themselves, you know, and that that is how things were, you know, up until after 1870 and how things had been since the day that Gilgamesh was two thirds God and one third man and the people of Uruk cry out to the gods to protect them against this kind of rapacious overlord. After 1870, things can be different. You know, um, that you no longer need to spend so much time running the force and fraud game because there is a lot more and there soon will be enough. The problem is that the underlying, you know, say the underlying forces of production hardware um, revolutionizes itself every generation after 1870, now that we've had as much technological change since 1870 as we had from minus 6000 to 1870. And so while, um, while the year is 1000 to 1870 they take us from feudalism and farming to, you know, commerce and gunpowder empires to steam power. After 1870, we go to steam power to the second industrial revolution technologies from those to mass production, um, from those to differentiated production and mass consumption and then from that to the global value chain economy. And now we're seeing another transformation of the forces of production to the info biotech economy, whatever that will work out. And so every generation people, even people with the most goodwill possible have had to figure out how do, we rewrite, um, how do we rewrite the sociological, political, economic software of human relationships and organization so that it now runs successfully on this totally new set of underlying forces of production technologically driven hardware. And to have to rewrite, have to rewrite how society works every generation so that the running code does not crash catastrophically all the time is an extremely, extremely difficult task. Plus, we have the memory and the inheritance of all the force and fraud games run by elites in the past. In some ways, it's a miracle we've only had two world wars over the course of the past 150 years, and numbers of totalitarian outbreaks that can be numbered on one hand, for the most part, that things could have been much worse given the difficulty of figuring out how to adapt society rapidly on the fly to a situation in which the way people live and work and do things is completely different and different every generation and then different again the generation after that
0: well we may unfortunately yet have a third world war but let's hope not you know given no. what's happening in ukraine mm-hmm. I mean, it does mm-hmm. it's pretty black then it gives an example of how crazily mad humanity can yes. be in terms of inflicting pain on itself.
1: Yes, um, major, major power war was not on my bingo card for 2022, nor was the belief that the way you convince Ukrainians that they are actually Russians and simply a different group of Russians with a slightly different culture rather than a separate nationality. Um, you persuade people of such things by showing them how great Russian art, literature and culture are. Um, You send out the Bolshoi Ballet and the orchestras to play the works of Mussorgsky. You don't send the killer robots in.
0: No, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But in terms of sort of issues that are also consuming the generation now, how does your vision of climate change play into all of this? Because that's another example where, you know, essentially, instead of enjoying the benefits of this extraordinary bounty, um, you know, humanity is in danger of just, you know, destroying the bounty itself. Yes.
1: Yes. I mean, this is the utilization problem, right? We have enormous technological wealth. Um, We could have started the transition to renewables big time 30 years ago. It was clear that we needed to back in the Clinton administration. We got within one Senate vote of getting Al Gore's BTU tax to provide major incentives You know, to use the market economy to, um, as von Hayek might have put it, had he lived into our day, to successfully crowdsource the solution to the problem of moving away from the carbon energy chain, right? I mean, carbon energy is a wonderful thing. We're using stored sunlight from 500 million years ago in a concentrated form to power our civilization. Yeah, but we could have had 30 years during which we figured out how to use the current sunlight to do this and so not have dumped all these warming chemicals into the atmosphere. We didn't, um, even though we got within one vote and even though we did about the equivalent of the BTU tax here in the US this past summer with you know, Joe Biden's success, at finally getting some legislative programs. through. But You know, the two degrees Celsius global warming scenarios now appear to be out the window. And while in the global north, most of what that means is the climate marches north out three miles a year for the next century, and we in the global north adapt, lots of other people won't be able to, right? It really looks like this year the monsoon is 300 miles south of where it's supposed to be almost surely because of global warming and, you know, 300 miles, um, given the geography of Asia, 300 miles means that stuff falls on the south flank of the the mountains rather than as ice and snow on the north flank. And so right now, Pakistan is still underwater and the Yangtze is six meters lower um, than it ought to be. You know, and there are three billion people who are very poor, for the most part, in the great river valleys of Asia and the monsoon regions, who need water, who need enough water, and who need the right amount of water at the right time for their civilizations to survive, as they're doing, and who do not have the resources to move anyplace else. And that—that that is going to be, I think, the big problem. Dealing with that is going to be the big problem of the next generation. It's no longer going to be, um, how are we going to utilize our immense wealth? It's going to be, we've misused our immense wealth. We've failed to utilize it properly. And how do we start cleaning up the damage?
0: Well, let's hope so. I think the theme of cleaning up your mess in every possible sense is gonna be the Mm -hmm. theme of the next um, Mm -hmm. decade or two. But um, before I start talking about what this means for the UK economy and what you think about triple down economics, Can I quickly ask? I mean, we're about to go into the World Bank IMF meetings. Um, How do you see those? You know, what do you think that the groups like the World Bank and IMF should be talking about in relation to these kind of problems and challenges? And are they doing enough to address any of this?
1: They should be talking about global warming. They should be talking about releasing the stocks of grain that we have in the developed countries. Um, They should be talking about Debt relief, Um, they should be talking very, 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 very loudly um, about how it should be that they can manage to keep the fight against inflation from sending the world economy into a big recession. Um, And they should be talking about other things as well, dealing with how we establish a peaceful and effective world in this particular situation, which we can no longer count on even a semi-benevolent US or before that, and even semi-benevolent UK, you know, to effectively run how the world manages to work.
0: The challenges are actually enormous. But what about the UK here in the UK, uh, who together with her chancellor, or what the Americans would call the Treasury Secretary of Finance, Kwasi Kwarteng is all about um, trickle-down economics. Um, how do you see triple down economics and do you think it actually works or not?
1: Um, well, first of all, um, if I were quasi Cartang, I would not have taken the job you know, here in the United States, we have, I think, six people to do the job that the chancellor, of the exchequer does in Britain. Um, and our six can barely do their jobs properly. Um, it seemed to me it's been impossible for a chancellor of the exchequer to ever Um, do his job successfully and has been since the late 1800s, in fact, which is why over and over again you find chancellors of the Exchequer in the UK totally incompetent and under-briefed on one very important part of their mission and falling flat on their face. And this is something that I think Britain definitely needs to change and ought to have changed a hundred years ago, that the job is simply too big, the economic and financial is too important, for all these things to be under the purview of any one person, no matter how smart and how well-attentioned. As to trickle-down economics, well, it can work. Um, In some sense, it has worked in the past, 1870 to 1914, what John Maynard Keynes called economic Eldorado um, is the big example um, in which the world pulls forward for the first time with this enormous increase in global income and wealth inequality that we call the first Gilded Age, but indeed everyone else is pulled up as well. Real wages in the global North are twice what they were in 1870 come 1913. I remember being struck when I was 20 by Chinua Achebe's novel about the Igbo um, regions of Nigeria, things fall apart about how the coming of the British colonizers, you know, that they were nasty and they brought an absolutely crazy religion, but on the other hand, you had more goods to buy and never had the palm kernels that they produced commanded such a great price on the market. Problem was that was three or four sets of forces of production, three or four industrial revolutions ago, and um, If there is a lesson about the 20th century is that you should not look back and try to reassemble something that worked the past generation and apply it to today, because the technological underpinnings of the economy, how people work, how people live, how they communicate, are so very different um, that we cannot, cannot. Reproduce the successes of Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan, for those who think their policies were great successes, um, simply by redoing what they did and hoping for the same results because the technological underpinnings are completely different. And the same applies to my friends on the left who keep calling for more New Deals, right? The New Deal was now three technological revolutions ago. And so what worked in the 1930s is very unlikely to work today.
0: That's a very good point because, of course, journalists are trained very often to try and take metaphors from the past or frames from the past or slogans and mm-hmm. reproduce them. Um, and that's a very understandable temptation, but it's, you know, as you mm-hmm. say, can be very misleading. Um, how would you then sort of characterize kind of the current situation now? And I'm curious, your crucial period stops in 2010. Why? <laughs>
1: Um, Well, my friend John Fernald would say that the engine of technological progress begins losing a lot of its cylinders around 2005. Um, That is, the generation of neoliberalism had made a lot of corporations concentrate on short-term bottom lines, which meant that the industrial research labs that had been doing so much of the heavy lifting for technology in the four generations before, found themselves starved of money and resources. Plus, the increasing scale of effort that's demanded, given that we've ticked the low-hanging technological fruit, meant that governments really had to step in and do a lot more at financing technological revolutions at scale than they had before when large Oladapus corporations could do it. And again, in the neoliberal age, by and large, governments didn't. Um, and so things were going well, appeared to be going well, from 1993 to 2005 or so, as far as technological growth is concerned. My teacher, the late Dale Jorgensen, would say largely simply because Intel hit the groove with its TikToks. Um, but after 2005, the pace of technological growth has slackened a lot. You'll know, the pace of sociological and economic disruption produced by changes in the economy has not. So the balance of the benefits of growth compared to its drawbacks has shifted. Um, The United States has lost its position as um, Leon Trotsky liked to call it the furnace where the future was being forged. It was the country that everyone looked at um, to kind of not necessarily to imitate, but to get good ideas from and to figure out what was likely to happen to them in the future. And yet I cannot find a person in India or China today who thinks the United States is any kind of model at all. Um, They view us as the unworthy heirs of people, of predecessors who did great things, um, but are now living off our capital and messing everything up. The idea that the world had um, a kind of organization headed for a collective idea of peace and prosperity and increasing democracy, that is now under systemic challenge in a way that it was not before. Plus, we have two problems that are wholly new, um, that nuclear proliferation has now attained critical mass, to make a bad joke, and global warming is a, is a civilization-shaking threat. Plus a problem we thought we had solved, the problem of maintaining democracy um, in the face of pressures for for what we might as well call fascism. Um, We thought we had solved that in the 1940s, turns out we have not. So the balance looks much less hopeful for me in the future. It's not that we are going to continue to become much richer and we still need to figure out how to solve the problems of distribution and utilization. We still have to solve the problems of distribution and utilization, but we won't have as large a technological uh, dividend each generation to do so. Plus we face three civilization shaking problems that were largely off the table back before 2010. And that's what makes me think that the, the story of the 21st century is going to be different than the story of the 20th one, although we do not yet know what that story is.
0: Well, it sounds to me like your, you know, postscript should be slouching towards dystopia, not utopia, because if you're basically arguing that essentially you've got, you know, all the hangover of the failure to distribute the Uh bonanza of wealth last time, coupled with the fact that the Uh bonanza of wealth is no longer in place, that's a very, very nasty cocktail when you put it together.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Another version of you never had it so good, you never used to have it so good, and you ain't going to have it so good again.
1: Yeah. Well, but we still have a civilization of immense power, and we do have the ability to talk across the world instantly, and there are 8 billion of us. And even though individually, um, individually we are barely smart enough to remember where we left our keys last night, so we can function during the day, uh, collectively, 8 billion of us are all properly smart, provided we can figure out how to think and pull together. Um, rather than figure out how to spend our time making each other unhappy.
0: Do you think that the current decade is going to turn out to be what I sometimes call a hinge decade in history? Because in some ways, the 1970s was a hinge decade and that you had a period of time when you came out of the post-World War II era, fast growth, mm-hmm but also a you know, consensus behind the idea of social democracy and governments getting involved in the economy and steering it and industrial policy was accepted. Um, that in some ways went to excess and we had the period of you know, high inflation and the crises in the 1970s. But out of that hinged moment, you then got this big swing towards deregulation and free market capitalism and then globalization. I'm curious, you know, in some ways, what we're going through today has echoes of the 1970s do you think it's going to be another hinge decade, but maybe swinging back the other way against deregulation towards more state involvement um, in the economy um, how do you see that.
1: Well, this is the knotty question of the neoliberal turn right um, of the shift from what Gary Gerstle likes to call the New Deal order and I did you tend to call social democracy you know, to. You know, That's whatever. a
0: European-American distinction, you know, we call it social democracy yes. on the side, the Atlantic yes. and um, yes. New yes. Deal on America, yes.
1: The, the question of whether you should say Deng Xiaoping, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher and Rajiv Gandhi are all for part of a single movement um, that is turning the world in a particular direction. I am puzzled by this, right, that If you'd asked me back in 2000, say before Al Gore lost the 2000 presidential election by the vote of five to four, since ultimately only nine people were allowed to vote in that thing, um, I would have said, yes, we'd had a course correction in the late 1970s that the post-World War II New Deal order was excessively bureaucratized. Excessively subject to rent seeking, um, that we needed to have more of a rediscovery of Friedrich von Hayek's insights about how a market economy, provided you could properly align social um, prices with social values, how that was actually the best possible crowdsourcing mechanism. Because other systems either had some person at the top issuing orders, and God knows the person at the top has no idea what is really going on. Or had a small number of people writing a bureaucratic rule book and turning everyone else into software bots that simply followed procedures. And again, no small group of people can figure out what the rule book ought to be, as any one of us who have ever dealt with a bureaucracy knows. And it's much, much better to let people think, you know, and be creative. You know, and the market economic order, if prices are aligned with social values, has the two enormous, enormous benefits. Um, that it pushes decision-making out to the periphery where there's someone who actually knows what's going on. And also, you really do not need to try to check up on people to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, because as long as prices are aligned with social values, there's money to be made and there's a comfortable life to be gained by doing what is actually good for society. You know, that is the free development of you um, brings altogether together the free development of all, um, wonderful system if you can get it signed up and properly tuned and properly aligned. Um, and so in 2000, I would have said that we've made a, um, successful course correction and that we had the possibility of running, you know, a better, a bigger, a better, a more established social democracy slash new deal order. Um, although one wearing left neoliberal sheep's clothing. Um, but you know, through two thousand, things pretty much did fall apart. Um, you know, in the United States, you know, George W. Bush um, proceeded to, I would say, break many of the accomplishments of the Clinton administration and some of the accomplishments of the George H. W. Bush administration for no reason other than, that I can see other than A, he could, and B, a fairly strong sense that, um, that income and wealth inequality was not a bug but a feature, you know? that it was a good world in which the job creators got richer, and it was a just world in which people who were in some sense you know, perceived as slackers. Um, actually, had an uncomfortable life and had to scrabble in order to work harder in order to kind of hold body and soul together. You know, and Barack Obama was unable to get back to anything like Clintonite confidence um, for reasons I do not understand. Nick Clegg acted like, um, well, acted like Nick Clegg and threw away all of the Liberal Democrats' power in the United Kingdom for absolutely nothing except to enable a conservative government that was hearkening back the policy mistakes of the pre-Great Depression, British conservative governments of the 1920s who did not know how to deal with the economic crisis of the post-war, post-World War I era. And they then repeated those mistakes in the post-Great Recession era, um, you know, followed by British politics and American politics spiraling out of control. Um, into something that leads people elsewhere to say no. You know, A democracy that can elect a Donald Trump or a Boris Johnson has nothing to teach say a country. And even though Xi Jinping may be a little more authoritarian at least he knows what's what um, and how to do it. Um, it was, A remarkable sense that things were that the neoliberal order was not successful at achieving its goals, you know, and yet the thing continues to hold on, and the um, alternatives that seem to be getting political attraction, well, they do not look any better. Um, That, you know, again, you know, one's tempted to go back to Yeats's poem, um, "The Second Coming." about precisely about how the falcon cannot hear about, the cannot hear the falconer, that the people who are in charge of governing cannot really hear and see what is supposed to be going on. Um, right. A hinge decade, yes, but the hinge replies that there's something on the other side, and I do not yet see what's on the other side.
0: Well, I think your book lays out very clearly You know, the fact we need to find something on the other side. We don't yet know what it is. But just lastly, Mm -hmm. we're almost out of time. But what's the one key message you want to really, you know, give to readers in the UK and elsewhere from this book? If you have your one elevator pitch. Um,
1: I would say that that we have a civilization of enormous, enormous technological power um, and strength. That our predecessors and previous generations would be embarrassed and sorry for us that we have not managed um, to do a better job at using our material wealth and our technological powers to build a utopia. Um, That we should not look to the past for models about how to organize ourselves because, as we say, technology is different and society has to at least conform to the requirements of the underlying technology in which we live. And as John Maynard Keynes wrote back in 1924 during an earlier so-called time of troubles in the socioeconomic system, that our political parties now are all anchored in the past and that what we really need are new ideas and new ways of organizing ourselves. And so the next move must be with the head. We need to think much harder about how to create a better world um, rather than to grab for solutions that seem to work in the past.
0: Well, that's a very rousing call to arms. Um, it's certainly a good call to arms for journalists like myself to realise you can't just use the analogies in the past to try and explain what's going on today, whether it's trickle down economics or the New Deal. Um, and it's a certain rousing call to arms for policymakers and people from your profession, from the economics world and the academic world. So the RSA aims to champion um, these kinds of debates and discussions. It tries to put um, ideas out into the public debate in the UK and elsewhere. Um, Your book is terrific. Strongly recommend anyone to read it to get a bracing view of how the world worked between 1870 and 2010 and what the legacy is and why it might be changing. So it just remains for me to say a very big thank you indeed um, for your time and um, good luck in getting the message out.
1: thank you very very much it's been a great pleasure to be here
0: thanks for listening if you like this podcast head to our youtube channel for inspiring talks interviews and animations